Well, as we continue with our study of the Christmas story this morning, we come to a story put together by Matthew in a very specific way. And so on the one hand, he comes to us with a group of guys who are desperately trying to find Jesus. And here's why they're desperately trying to find Jesus. They're seeking to worship Christ. They're seeking to serve the Lord Jesus. They want to take their lives, the whole of their lives, and literally go face down before the newborn king. So that's what they're looking to do. But on the other hand, in the same story, we've got this other guy who's also desperately trying to find Jesus, but for a very different reason. He's looking to kill Jesus. Why does Matthew take these two incredibly different responses and reactions to the newborn king who is the Lord Jesus Christ and put them together in one story? It's to cause us to look at ourselves as we compare ourselves with these two different characters, if you will, these two different responses, and to say, all right, which one am I? And don't answer it too quickly this morning, okay? Because you know who the good guys are and you know who the bad guy is and you know, therefore, what camp you kind of want to be found in. It's like the right answer is these guys over here and so we quickly want to run over there and discount any ways that we might look like the bad guy. Don't do that. He gives you both for a reason. And frankly, you might want to pay more attention to the bad guy. There's no one here, I promise you, who would kill the newborn baby Jesus. You don't have murderous intentions toward Christ. I'm sure of that. But I'll tell you what every one of us, to one degree or another, does do. We seek to marginalize Jesus. We seek to distance ourselves to some degree from Him. We, we, we'll get close, but only so close. And here's why. Because just like the bad guy in the story... We see him as a threat. See, the group of guys who are looking to find Jesus, to worship Jesus, and just go all in on him are the wise men. Of course, you already know that if you know the Christmas story. But they're a group of guys who get Christ. They understand the value. They know who he is. They know what he's come to do. And they just understand intuitively that he's worth their all. Herod, the bad guy? doesn't, and only sees Jesus as a threat to what he's made for himself. We pick up our study today in Matthew chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, where Matthew says this. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So there it is. He's born. He's born in Bethlehem. And as Sam, I think, just did a terrific job last week talking to us about, he is the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who's born where? In Bethlehem, in the house of of bread, and then he's put into a manger. He's put into a feeding trough. That's an invitation to everyone, you, me, the wise man, Herod, to come and to partake of him by faith. And in in partaking of him by faith, what do we gain? Life. He comes offering life, real life, abundant life. Not just next world life, but this world life, meaning-filled life, purpose-filled life. I understand why I'm here kind of life. I actually have a mission kind of life. There's something more valuable than than me kind of life and eternal life. It's pretty cool. So Matthew says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he's been born... The bread of life has come. But then he adds to that. He says, in the days of Herod the king. Okay, Herod's the bad guy. And I want to tell you some things about Herod, like, for example, that he actually was a king. 
That's unusual back in those days. The Roman Empire ruled over all, including this area of Judea over which he had been made king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. The title matters, and man, did this guy love and value his kingdom. This guy threw himself furiously into building his kingdom, literally. The sheer volume of building projects that this guy undertook is staggering. And he, he became known as a result as Herod the Great. And if you go to Israel with us next year, you'll actually see some of the things that he built, or, well, actually what you'll see are the ruins of some of the things that he built. You'll see Caesarea, the the city on the Mediterranean that he built. You'll see Masada, the great fortress by the Dead Sea that he built. Pretty amazing guy, this Herod. But in building all of these things, what is he trying to do for himself? He's trying, in some sense, to gain eternal life. Not with God. I don't think he has any concept of a real God. But he's trying to generate by his own hands eternal life by creating things that will last long beyond him, or at least that's what he thought. In other words, he wants to create things that will speak eternally of the fact that he once lived. And he did once live, I guess. But I'll tell you, I've been there a couple of times now. And everything he built like I said, lies in ruins. He left it all behind, and it's mostly rubble. So I want to ask you this morning, because everybody here, myself included, has an answer to this question. What are you building? What are you pouring yourself furiously into? What are you running fast after? What are you investing your life into creating? And why are you doing it? Like, what's the motive behind it? What drives you? What is that? And whatever it is, most importantly, do you value it more than you value the newborn king who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Because Herod did, and I hope you see the irony in that, he forsook the true bread of life, the one in whom life is found, this life And in the next, actual eternal life, vibrant eternal life, living eternal life, eternal glory kind of life. For the dying, leave it all behind. Today it lies in ruins. Stuff of this world. Matthew says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, he says, which is a word of sight as we talked about two weeks ago, he wants you to see what he sees. And what does he see? Well, he sees wise men or magi from the east, probably from Babylon, who came to Jerusalem. And these guys too were like kings. In fact, when we sing of them, what do we sing? We three wise men? No. It's we three kings, right? Kings. You're like, are they kings? I don't know. Probably not, actually. Were there three? No idea. They bring three gifts. That's why we call them three kings. But I'll tell you this, they were like kings. They were king-like in the way that they lived. These were fabulously wealthy, fabulously influential, powerful, highly educated men who moved and operated in the courts of the kings, who enjoyed the highest privileges of that day and age, and who, among other things, studied 
the stars and who here came to Jerusalem with all of their pomp and circumstance, these Persian king-like men, and probably with a huge caravan of people who cared for them, who cooked for them, who were their bodyguards, literally, who protected them on this six to seven hundred mile journey that they took by way of camel from Persia or what used to be Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. And they come into Jerusalem asking a question that would cause a massive stir in the city as if their coming into the city wasn't enough. They come into the city, and what do they say? Matthew says they come in saying, where is he who has been appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Empire? No, that's Herod, and that's the problem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then they just amp it up a little bit by adding, for we saw his star when it rose. Now, why does that inflame that statement even further? Because in the ancient Near East, it was thought that the births of great kings were declared in the heavens, in the stars. Oops. This is not going to go well. So they roll into town, big caravan, lots of wealth, lots of fuss, everybody's buzzing, and then they roll out that question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Oh, yeah, because his birth also was was declared in the heavens. We saw his star when it rose, and then we set aside all of the security, all of the comfort, all of the benefits of being at our home. We put aside our businesses and our investments and all of these things, and we came six or 700 miles by means of camel into the region of a famous man named King Herod, who we knew to be in advance, nuts about his kingdom. Herod killed three of his sons, one of his favorite wives, he had a few, sorry, and his (laughs) mother-in-law. No comment, but, but think about that. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. He uses that phrase twice. And we have come to pay homage to, to serve, to pour ourselves out in front of, to lay down on our faces before, symbolically saying that we have collected up the whole of us, everything, we're all in, face down to worship him. That's their response to the newborn Jesus, but it's not Herod's. Matthew says in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and now notice this, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why do you think that is? Because he's crazy. That's why. He does not handle rival kings gently. And so nobody knows what this guy is going to do. And again, why is he troubled? Well, just play it out. He's troubled because here's the deal. He is assuming, assuming that one born king of the Jews, whose birth is declared in the heavens, is a threat to the kingdom that he has spent his life so furiously building. And again, I want you to hear that this morning because what's the question of the story? The question is, hey, who are you in this story? Which one of these guys, if you will, the wise men or Herod, do you look most like? I mean, it's sort of a continuum with each one of them on one side or the other. All right, well, where are you in this continuum? Because I will tell you, 
a lot of us see Jesus as a threat. Some of us, like Herod, see him as a threat to our stuff, and we wrongly assume that he's not more valuable than our stuff, and that that's really what he wants. The king of the universe is consuming himself with my little kingdom. Doesn't even make sense. Now, he does ask us to submit our stuff like everything else in our lives to him. Why? Because he knows that we cannot serve two masters. And I would ask you, is there a better master out there than him? But for others, it's other things. You know, it can be a sin. It can be a habit. It can be an addiction. It can be a relationship. It can be comfort. It can be status. It can be, I finally got everything arranged. Don't mess it up. It can be... See, the wise men value Christ above all things and therefore submit all things to Christ. Herod values his things above Christ and therefore is seeking to get rid of him. Look at these guys. Who do you look most like? So Matthew again says that when Herod the king heard about this one born king of the Jews, whose birth was announced in the stars, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him because, you know, who knows what he's going to do. And then it says, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now, why does he do that? Okay, here's the answer to this. And it helps explain the difference in perspective between the wise men and Herod and maybe between the wise men and us to some degree. Herod doesn't know the Bible. He has a question about the Messiah. He doesn't know anything about the Messiah because he has not read anything about the Messiah. He hasn't heard anything about the Messiah. He hasn't studied anything about the Messiah. So he's got to call in the experts. Okay, guys, come on in here. I've got a Bible question. I'd appreciate you guys to answer for me. But he does, in his ignorance of Jesus, make assumptions about Jesus, like the fact that the great king of the universe has nothing more to consume his time with and to consume himself with than the stealing of Herod's kingdom. And all of us make assumptions. In our ignorance of the Christ, we assume things about the Christ, about his character, about his love, about his power, about his purity, about his wisdom, about his value. Value's on the table for sure today. He assumes things. And he's wrong in his assumptions. Matthew says that when Herod the king heard about the one born king of the Jews whose birth was announced in the stars, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And then assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, according to the Bible, is the idea that the Christ was to be born. And they told him, it's in there, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah. So now they're just showing off. You know, they could have just given the short answer, Bethlehem, we're done. No, 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 no. For so it is written by the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now, why is he doing all this? Again, his goal is get rid of Jesus. So he has a plan A and a plan B. Plan A is going to be here in a second, and you'll see it. He's going to ask the wise men to go scout it out for him. I think if he shows up in Bethlehem with some soldiers, you know, he might have some trouble. But if they can go, I mean, they've made it all the way from Persia and find Jesus for him and then come back and say, oh, he's here, well, then he can come and worship him with his spear. 
That's plan A. Plan B is, if all else fails, I know the town he's in, and if these guys tell me when they first saw the star, I can calculate his age, and then I can go to that little town and kill all the male children of that age and younger. Nice guy. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, plan A, saying, go and search diligently for the child. Go find him for me. And then when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him and, you know, I'll bring my sword or something. And, and then Matthew says that after listening to the king, the wise men went on their way and behold, he wants you to see it. Look, the star that they had seen when it rose, reappeared. And it went before them. It acts very unstar-like, doesn't it? It's a very unique manifestation of something in the sky. It went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they felt very threatened because they thought, oh, good grief, what has this king come to take away from us? What is he going to want now? What part of my life is this guy going to want me to give to him? I mean, what is he going to meddle with? When they saw the star, they rejoiced. And it wasn't moderate rejoicing. It wasn't like, oh, rejoice, we're really happy. No, 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 no. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down on their faces is the point, and they worshiped him, and then opening their treasures, because you do not come to a king without treasures, they offered him gifts of what? Because it matters, of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, that indeed he is nuts and his intentions are not good. They departed to their own country by another way and rode six to seven hundred miles home. Fascinating. But why did they come in the first place? I mean, seriously, why are these Persian kings all the way over in, like, Babylon, first of all, even looking for the sign of the one who would be born king of the Persians? No, of the Jews. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And then beyond that, why in the world, having seen it and recognized it for what it is, did they feel compelled to then make the trek all the way to Jerusalem all the way to Bethlehem to give their whole to him, to gather it all up and fall down and worship him. I think the answer is that they knew the Bible, unlike Herod, and they certainly knew the book of Isaiah. Very confident of that, which is why I think they're from Babylon, because there was a worshiping community of Jews there, and they would have had access to all of these books. Listen to what Isaiah says. For example, things that they knew that Herod didn't know, which results in worship as opposed to threat and take it into your own heart. It's a really big deal. Isaiah 60, beginning of verse 1, it says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has done what? It's risen upon you. Now, what did they say to Herod? We saw his star when it rose. Twice Matthew says that. For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
Was it a real star or a unique manifestation of God's glory that took these guys who were way, way, way away from him and brought him all the way to the feet of him? God does that. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise, there it is again, upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, meaning Gentile nations, so they got the fact that he's not just the king of the Jews, which would have resonated with Herod too, since he also was not a Jew. Nations, meaning all nations, shall come to your light. They will follow your glory or follow your star and kings, which is what we call them when we sing. We three kings. To the brightness of your rising. So we three kings of Orient are, what's the next line? Bearing gifts. We traverse afar. Boy, that's an understatement. What are the gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, why in the world did they bring those gifts? Answer, because Isaiah told them to. Three verses later, he says this. He'll name two of the three, and I recognize the third is missing, but I'm not done. He says, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. You're like, what about the myrrh? And we'll get to that in a minute. But I just want you to see they had the book of Isaiah, which means that they knew things Herod did not know. Like, for example, what Isaiah says in Isaiah 7, verse 14, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a game changer. That's a difference maker. That is a perspective shifter. See, what these guys understood that Herod did not get at all is that this newborn king whose birth is declared in the stars by the glory of God itself, which has arisen upon these men and their calling being called forth according to the prophetic utterance of Isaiah issued 750 years before Jesus is even born, is that this king is not just another rival human king. He's God himself in the flesh. So then to reject him is to reject the source of wisdom. To reject him is to reject the source of life. To devalue him is to say, my goodness, I'm going to give my life to something that's less, like me, or stuff, or sin. Or name it. It's the highest calling in the universe, the calling to come to Christ. And it's uttered to everyone, to all who come to him by faith, who see his light, maybe just in a different way. So unlike Herod, these guys knew that. And they knew as well what Isaiah said about Jesus in Isaiah 9, verse 6, where he says this. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's not just to Mary. It's not just to Joseph. It's not just to the Jewish people. It's to all who come, all who respond to that great and highest call. So he's being, he's going to be born. He's coming to us and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So now they know he's a king. They know he's God in the flesh. They know that he's going to rule. But what kind of a king is he going to be? Because that's here too. 
Herod doesn't know it, they do. And they know it because Isaiah then says, and his name shall be called. And what happens next is that he gives us a list of all of these names or titles that meant something to the ancient Near Eastern minds. You see, when the ancient Near Eastern kings of old were born, they were given, particularly in Egypt, throne names, which were said to speak prophetically of the kind of king they would be. So what kind of king is Jesus? Because... The wise men knew, and therefore they didn't see him as a threat. They didn't see him as one to be avoided. They didn't see him as one to be marginalized. They saw him as one to fall down before, taking the considerable everything that these guys in that day had and said, look, you know, this is nothing, but such as it is, I bring it. I bring it to you. So they knew that his name, for example, would be called Wonderful Counselor. Maybe you're thinking that's good because I need a good counselor, and okay, Maybe we can help you with that, but it's a different kind of counselor. Wonderful counselor refers to a military strategist. That's different. And the idea and the image here is that our God is engaged in a battle, and it's not a battle, you know, for our cities or, or for our monuments or for our fortresses that we're furiously building with our lives. What are you building and why? How do you value it compared to Christ? It's not that. He's battling for our hearts. He's battling for our families. He's battling for our city. He's battling for our world. And what Isaiah does here is he sees in advance the strategy of the wonderful counselor, and he declares it, in fact, to be wonderful because it's so radically different than the kind of strategy that an earthly king would bring. Guys, he doesn't conquer us with his might. Now, could he? Of course. He conquers us with his mercy. He doesn't take us by force. He comes to us in the most vulnerable form possible, that of a baby. And he woos us, every one of us, with the face of a child. The wise men knew this. Herod didn't. They worshipped. He tried to get rid of Jesus. Makes a difference. And they knew also that he would be called Mighty God. The word mighty here speaks of a mighty warrior who, unlike the military leaders of our day who sit in their operations room and through technology kind of prosecute their wars from afar, our mighty warrior takes upon himself our humanity and as a man for men, male and female, humanity, does what? He puts his people behind him and he walks out onto the battlefield alone and he does battle not against us. That's what Herod feared. He does battle for us. They knew that he didn't. They worshipped. To him, Jesus was a threat, and they knew also that his name shall be called Everlasting Father, which, you know, depending upon what kind of dad you had, could actually sound kind of threatening, couldn't it? And maybe it does to you. But he's a very different kind of dad. He's the perfect father to his people. He's the dad you always wished you had and then some. He doesn't seek to disadvantage his children. He seeks to advantage his children. He doesn't impose himself upon us. He lays down his life for us. He doesn't abuse us. He takes abuse for us. He doesn't disown us. At the price of his own blood, he purchases us, and he doesn't disinherit us, but instead he freely gives to us all that is his, and not just in this life, but forever. 
And he's an everlasting father, which means he doesn't die and he doesn't leave. They got this. And then finally, the wise men knew as well that his name shall be called Prince of Peace because peace is what he brings. He brings peace between us and God and between us and us as well. In the end, forever there will be peace for God's people. And the question is, well, how does he do that? And that's where the myrrh comes in. You know, I was coming back to that, right? I mean, it was a glaring missing thing there. Gold, frankincense, the more obsessive, compulsive of us are going, I can't believe he hasn't mentioned the myrrh yet. (laughs) Why myrrh? What was that? In the ancient world, it was a burial spice. They used it to embalm people. Now, why in the world would anyone bring a burial spice as a gift to a brand new baby king? You wouldn't, unless you had also read through and studied and rightly understood Isaiah 53. Just going to read you a few verses. Follow the personal pronouns and understand the mission of your king. Isaiah writes, he says, Surely he, King Jesus, has borne whose griefs? His? No. Mine. Yours. And carried his sorrows? No. Ours. And yet we, as humanity looked on, esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, under the judgment of God, and afflicted. And indeed he was, but for who? For us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, here's the word, peace. And with his wounds, we who come to him in faith, bringing to him our sin and ourselves, are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Everyone. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They brought myrrh because they knew that their king had come to die in their place, to lay down his perfect life as a sacrifice for their sin, that they and that we might be washed by faith of all of our iniquity, to use that word, and to gain eternal life through him. Guys, Jesus didn't come to take from you or from me. He came to give. So, as you look at the characters, as you size up yourself by their examples, who are you? Where are you on the continuum? Somewhere between, you know, Herod who's trying to kill Jesus, might be a little extreme, and the wise men who really get it, and they take their considerable all from our perspective, and they say, you know what? Just a little bit. Lord, here it is. You deserve nothing less, because he comes to you, not with might, but mercy. And he woos you, not with an army but with the face of a child, particularly at Christmas. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for the Lord Jesus. For God made man. God, we thank you for our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father and our Prince of Peace who went out before us onto the battlefield that was ours. And in our place and for our sin, defeated our sin, that he might purchase our peace with himself, with God. God, we thank you for the life that is found in him, life now and life forever. Not a life that we leave behind and lies in ruins beyond our years, but a life that ever increases in glory as eternally we belong to him. I pray, God, that you would do business with us, that you would talk to us about where we are on this continuum between Herod and the wise men, and that you would help us to see Jesus not as a threat, but as the one in whom we find everything we're looking for everywhere else. And pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.